Turn, if you would, to the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew. This is the 70th lesson. We'll make it for about four more, and we will be done sometime. We did have a, another grandson born last Sunday night, so uh, for lunch today we will have two grandsons over. We've never had that before, so... We are in the final week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. You know the story because we talk about it every Easter. We spent a lot of time on his teachings, then we spent some time uh, talking about his, the Last Supper, and then last week it was actually his arrest when they showed up in the garden after he was praying, and he was praying his well-known prayer, if it's possible, let's do plan B. But, not my will, but your will be done. And we had a long discussion last week regarding the fact that Jesus is in control of this situation. We are going to work through the trials today. In fact, we're going to read a lot of stuff today. We're going to work through the trials today, and you're going to get the feeling that he's just being dragged along from step to step to step. But remember that at any point in time, Jesus could stop it, and that was part of last week's lesson. When one of his disciples drew a sword and sliced off the ear of one of the priest's servants, Jesus said, stop it. Don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels? Somewhere in the neighborhood of 72,000 angels. And I could have put a stop to this if I wanted to, but I didn't. Yesterday in the car, I was listening to some lectures about Roman history, and they had a long discussion about Roman legions. You didn't want to mess with a Roman legion. How about a legion of angels? Hmm. So, he was arrested last week, and we pick up in verse 57, and we're going to work our way through a series of trials. Now, this is of such importance that each of the four Gospels has this story in there. Every one of them talking about going before the priest, going before Pilate, and eventually his being found guilty. And in the middle of that, we're going to talk about Peter denying Christ. If we had an abundance of time, we would have lined up all these four stories and talked about them individually. But we're not going to do that. Today, we're going to talk about the version as presented in Matthew. There are slight differences in the stories, but there are no differences that are contradictions of each other. All the stories have certain highlights that the Holy Spirit, talking to the author, said, this is what your audience needs to hear. For example, in the Matthew account that we're going to cover, there's no discussion about Jesus being sent to Herod. Well, in reality, that didn't have a whole lot to do with the flow of the story. I mean, he was sent to Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod trying to pass the buck, if you will. Herod passed him back and nothing happened with Herod. So Matthew sees no reason to include that in his story. But that doesn't mean that there are contradictions between the stories. 
All the stories can be lined up perfectly, and in fact, there's lots of books that line them up for you. We're going to talk about the version in Matthew. So, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest. We met Caiaphas several lessons ago. He was the high priest. It's interesting, his father, or is it father-in-law, is still around, and he was the high priest. And so sometimes the father is referred to as the high priest, as an honorarium, in the same way that we would talk today of President Bush, even though he is not the current president. So some of the accounts talk about Ananias, the father of Caiaphas, but they're probably both present. He was brought to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So he's got all of the religious leaders. Now we finally got Jesus where we want him. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, at the end of last week's lesson, all the disciples had run away. Because there were a bunch of Romans with swords, there were a lot of palace, I mean, uh, temple guards with clubs, and so they had fled. Well, G- Peter is kind of tagging along. He's not identifying himself with Jesus, but he wants to at least see what's happening. So he kind of mingles in with the crowd. So Jesus is taken in to see the high priest, and Peter is on the outside of the courtyard where there would have been the servants, etc., waiting to see if they were needed. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. I think it's interesting that Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says they were looking for false testimony. I would have contended that they would have thought they were looking for true testimony. But they didn't care. They didn't care what kind of testimony it was, as long as it accomplished the job that needed to be done, which was to get rid of Jesus. We've had this discussion. Why did they want to get rid of Jesus? Because he was assaulting their power structure. They were in charge, and here is this upstart from Galilee that's getting all the people riled up. So he is taking our religious authority, but not just that. They are definitely concerned that he's going to stir up the people. The people are going to get upset, and the Romans are going to step in and squish him like a bug. And if the Romans squish them, they're going to squish everybody. So they feel a need to get Jesus under control. It is a matter of pride. It is a a matter of maintaining their power. They are looking for whatever it takes. Now, we could stop at this point and have an interesting discussion. What are priests supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be standing between God and us, ministering to us, telling us what God is saying, sharing our needs with God. They are intermediaries. What are these priests doing? Whatever it takes to maintain their power. I would love to be able to tell you that in today's world, there's not preachers, pastors, priests, etc. that fall into this category. But there are. Why? Well, because we're all fallen creatures. And left to our own devices, we're going to seek our own end. 
They were looking for false testimony that they might put him to death, but they found none. That's fascinating. I've got this row of people lined up to give testimony about how Jesus attacked me, about how Jesus did this, how Jesus did that. The problem was that in a Jewish court, you had to have two guys that agreed with each other. You had to have two witnesses that said, I saw this, and their stories had to match. And guess what? I'm making up a story, John is making up a story, Fred is making up a story, and they're all made up. And guess what? Made up stories oftentimes don't agree with each other. They're having trouble finding anybody that can bear witness against Jesus. Just as a general rule, bearing witness against Jesus is just a bad idea in life. It kind of gives us an idea of the life that Jesus had led. When he gets to this point, he needs, no, the priests need somebody to say something bad. I guarantee you, I could find some people that I'm not going to tell you who they are, who could tell you stories about me that would be rather embarrassing to me. I ran that risk last week because I had two of my sisters in here and my mother. (laughs) And somebody was saying they were talking to my mother getting my life story, which scares the bejeebers out of me. Oh, well. The point is that we, as fallen human beings, all have things in our past that could be dragged up against us. They couldn't find any of that in Jesus. Come on, somebody, tell me when he was a child and he yelled at his mother. Nope, never happened. He was a sinless human being, and they couldn't find two people to lie and tell the same story. You'd have thought they'd have been better organized than that. At last two came forward and said, The man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Finally, we have two people telling the same story. What had Jesus said? Destroy this temple and in three days it'll come back. What was Jesus talking about? Jesus was talking about Jesus. Jesus was not talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the place where God met man, and it wasn't a stone building. It was the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, if they had known... What Jesus had told his disciples, which was that every stone of this physical temple is going to be torn down and scattered around, maybe they would have been ticked off. But instead, they are repeating a statement that in fact Jesus said, but they did not understand at all. And what did they see in this? Jesus is attacking our religious structures. And guess what? He was attacking their religious structures. It just had nothing to do with the physical temple. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. That really ticked them off, right? 
He wasn't saying anything. And you think, well, he wasn't saying anything because he knew he was caught. No, he wasn't saying anything because he knew where this was going to go. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Had Jesus spoken blasphemy? The answer is probably yes, in the eyes of the priest. Let's think about this. They finally come to Jesus and just ask him outright, Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? I demand that you answer this question because I am the high priest. And Jesus said, you said it. But I'll tell you something. I'll tell you what you're going to see. From now on, you will see the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Well, we know that Jesus usually, oftentimes, refers to himself as the Son of Man to emphasize his humanity. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see the Son of Man in his power. Is this blasphemy? C.S. Lewis has an argument that he makes about Jesus that is very relevant to this discussion right here. You've heard it before, but I want to repeat it to you, okay? Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he's the Lord. What C.S. Lewis is dealing with is this idea that Jesus was just a good teacher. I've told you before, I had a professor in a humanities class who made the comment that she really liked Jesus. Jesus and Socrates, two great men killed because of their beliefs and because of their teachings. All he was was a great teacher. And guess what? He was a great teacher. You can go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and if we followed that as good old-fashioned pagans, our life would probably be better. So was he just a good teacher? And C.S. Lewis says we do not have that option because Jesus is telling us that he is the Son of God. And if I told you that I was the Son of God, you would sit there and go, well, he teaches well, but he's a lunatic. (laughs) Really? Either I'm a liar. I know that I'm not the Son of God. I know that if you prick me, I will bleed. I know it, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway because I want to fool you. I'm a liar. Or... I am crazy. 
I really do think that I'm the son of God. You know, you've heard the people in the lunatic, the asylum, and they're carting one guy down the hall, and he thinks he's Napoleon. And one of the workers says, why did you invade Russia? And he said, God told me to. And a voice comes out of one of the other rooms. No, I didn't. If I really told you and tried to convince you that I was God, I would either go start a cult somewhere and find the handful of people who would believe me, or you would lock me up. I'd be a lunatic. So if Jesus is a great teacher, he's either a great teacher who happens to be a liar because he's telling you something about himself that he knows isn't true, or he's a lunatic because he's telling you something that he believes is true, but we know it's not. Or when he says he is the Son of God, it is because he is the Son of God. Did Jesus speak blasphemy? If you did not believe that he was the Messiah, then by equating himself with the Messiah, he is speaking blasphemy. But in his case, he's actually telling the truth, but they are not going to acknowledge it. This is the bottom line. Remember those parables that Jesus ended up with? The man lets out his farm and he goes on a journey and he sends his servants to collect the wages and they beat them up. And finally he says, I will send my son because surely they will listen to my son. And he sends his son to collect his, the money that was due. And the people said, ah, if we kill him, then everything that he owns will be ours. That's the story right here. That is Jesus, the Messiah, presenting himself to the high priest. And he says, you're going to see the power. And the high priest tore his robes. That is a sign of great distress. They would tear their robes when they were really angry or really sad. Somebody died, they would tear their robes, they'd put ashes on their head, and they would mourn. Or if somebody in their presence was uttering blasphemy, and that's what they thought Jesus was doing. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? Why do we need more evidence? He has spoken blasphemy. What is your judgment? Now this shows the absurdity of this trial to begin with. What was the judgment of the court before the court began? 
We're looking for witnesses so that we can kill him. This is a bad judicial system right here. The guy is guilty. Let's find somebody to tell us something so we can find him guilty. And having heard blasphemy from him, what do you think we ought to do? We ought to kill him. But not only are we going to kill him, we're going to humiliate him. We're going to slap him. We're going to spit on him. Even if you did think he was guilty, even if you did think he was worthy of death, why would you do that? Because Jesus had been a thorn in their side and they were really ticked off at him. And now they had their opportunity for payback. And that's what they're doing. These dignified, cultured, intelligent, learned men are becoming children on a playground bullying him just because they can. We would never do that, would we? We would never humiliate somebody just because they disagreed with us. Prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? He's sitting there, one guy whacks him, another guy whacks him. Come on, you're so smart, tell us. And guess what? He was so smart. He could have told them. He could have said, Angel 5,611, kill that one. Angel 29,412, kill that one. And how long would it have taken? We are working our way to the crucifixion. Crucifixion is probably one of the most horrific and humiliating forms of execution ever created by mankind. Now, I've read stories of even more horrible ways of killing people, but this one's pretty bad. You see, we are all into, okay, if we're going to execute somebody, we can't have, what, cruel and unusual punishment. The Romans wanted cruel and unusual punishment. They wanted someone to be humiliated. They wanted someone to be stuck up there so that the rest of the people would say, you don't want to mess with the Romans. That's what they were after. Let's remind ourselves over and over and over again. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, humbled himself and became a baby Sunday night, my second grandson was born, and we held him, and he is the tiniest, most helpless thing in the universe. He has no capability of taking care of himself. None. And that's what the Son of God did for us. But if that were not enough, He is going to allow himself to be humiliated from this point to the actual crucifixion is going to be one path of humiliation. 
Why? Because he is bearing the sins of you and me, and he's willing to do that as the Son of God. This is just the start of the humiliation. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. You get this idea that they're getting updates, okay? They may be able to hear through the window what's going on. Other than that, there's probably somebody going, they just whacked him again. They pronounced blasphemy. They want to kill him. And the crowd outside is going, yeah, kill him. I don't know who he is, but kill him anyway. Could be fun. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them. All saying, I don't know what you mean. Okay, get the picture. Peter is standing there, and this really big, tough Roman centurion comes up, sticks a sword in his head, and says, you're one of them. Wait, that's not what happened. Some religious official comes up to him and says, you're... No, that's not what happened either. He's sitting there around the fire, and this servant girl, no power, no strength, no influence, comes up to him and says, wait a minute, you're one of them. You look like you're from Galilee. And he says, no way. Don't know what you're talking about. I'm just sitting here warming myself by the fire. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know this man. It is interesting that in the scriptures we get the denial, we don't get the oath, okay? We're PG all the way here. But you've got to accept the fact, okay? Peter was what? A fisherman. Peter probably had a very colorful language that on good days he didn't use when he was around his mother and Jesus. I have a son who's a Marine. He talks very nice around his mother, okay? I suspect there's some other words that are used other places. I don't know. Who knows? I'm sure the Marines are all real nice people. Peter probably has a few oaths, curses, whatever it is, and he probably used one. What the heck are you talking about? You know what heck is, right? That's where people go who don't believe in gosh. (laughs) Think about that one for a while. And again, he denied it. With an oath, I do not know this man. After a little while, the bystanders came up again to Peter. Certainly you too are one of them, by your, for your accent betrays you. They knew that he was from Arkansas just because of the way he talked. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. It's actually a modern phenomenon. This is not a joke. This is actually a modern phenomenon with modern TV. We actually, um, regional differences are actually kind of all melding together. But you talk to a good old boy from the South or from Arkansas or from someplace else, and you know where they're from. These were the same way. I know you're from Galilee. I can tell by your accent. 
Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Question, why is Peter doing this? Because he's scared. He's scared. He's scared of the servant girls. He's scared that somebody's going to know that he is associated with Jesus. And he's lying through his teeth. We talked about this three weeks ago. Because Jesus told them, when I get arrested, you're all going to run away. Every one of you. And Peter says, not me. I will stand by you to the death. Yep, you too, Peter. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny three times that you ever knew me. But remember the promise. We talked about this two weeks ago. We talked about it last week. Afterwards, come find me. Do we realize how amazing that is? Afterwards, come find me. I'll be up in Galilee. Come find me. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you denied me. I don't care how far you've run away. After it's all over, come find me. And here we have the proof of the resurrection. Wait a minute. How can we have the proof of a resurrection if he's not dead yet? Peter is scared to death of a servant girl. But something's going to happen to Peter. And Peter is going to stand up to anyone and everyone and proclaim the gospel. They're going to throw him in prison. They're going to beat him. Ultimately, they're going to kill him. Why? What happened between scared to death of a servant girl and standing before anybody sharing the gospel? What happened? The resurrection. That is the only way you can explain what's going to happen in the life of Peter. At this point here, Peter is done. But Jesus is not done with Peter. Jesus still has something in mind. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He knew that the game was over. He told me I would deny him. I denied him. He had been caught, and he knew he had been caught. There is no psychological game that he could play Go to good counseling, go to good therapist, take some good antidepressant drugs. There is nothing that he could do that on his own could bring him back to do what he's going to do in the book of Acts. There was only Jesus, and that's all it took. Back to Jesus. The high priest decided that he was worthy of death. But there's a problem. The Romans were in charge of 
the Middle East. The Romans gave the priest certain authority. You can arrest somebody, you can find somebody, you can beat somebody, you can cast somebody out of the temple, but you can't kill them. The Romans themselves maintained control over the death penalty. And it wasn't because they were shy about using it. They just didn't want some Jewish person condemning a Roman soldier to some crime and getting him executed. So they maintained that power to themselves. So what does that mean? If they're going to execute Jesus, they've got to get the Romans' permission. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, over to Pilate the governor. Now, it is interesting because they're going to talk to Pilate. One of the other gospels does tell us that because the religious leaders would not uh, dirty themselves by entering a pagan's home during Passover week, Pilate actually has to come out to them. So, picking up in verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor. Yes, I know we skipped 3 to 10. We'll come back to that. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Now, it's interesting to me, because this is what he said to the religious leaders. What does it mean? Is it a yes or is it a no? He's just saying, well, that's what you say. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Picture this. Pilate is a Roman governor. He does not give a flip about some two-bit Messiah wannabe from Galilee. Why should he? What does blasphemy mean to him? I mean, today, you can stand in a public space and say anything you want against God, Allah, Yahweh, whoever, and nobody's going to come after you for blasphemy in this country. It's not true in certain countries. But in this country, we don't care about blasphemy today. Pilate doesn't give a flip about blasphemy. What is his question? Are you the king of the Jews? Why? All he's interested in is maintaining the authority of Rome in this province that he's responsible for. That's all he's interested in. The maintenance of power for the Romans. Are you the Messiah? Doesn't care. He doesn't care anything about a Messiah, but he wants to know, are you the king of the Jews? Because if you're a king, you're going to raise an army. If you raise an army, you're going to try to fight us. If you try to fight us, we're going to have to fight you back. And if I can't control it, Caesar will send in more troops. I may lose my job. Bad situation for me, bad situation for the Romans, and if it takes killing you, I'll kill you. No problem. 
we do actually have more discussion in some of the other Gospels. Because Jesus says, do you think that I am? Who told you that? And he says, I don't care. And he makes the comment that my kingdom is not of this world. At that point, Pilate doesn't care. But what Pilate is really amazed at in this particular situation is how little he says. This is not the first time somebody's been brought to him for a trial, okay? It probably happened all the time. And if you were brought before Pilate, what are you going to do? You're going to start saying everything you can think of to try to talk Pilate out of killing you. You're going to make up stories. You're going to talk about how your mother loves you. You're going to talk about your kids at home. Even if you don't have any kids, you're going to make up any story you can to save your life. (coughs) And Jesus just sits there. And Pilate's amazed. Don't you care what all these people are saying about you? And he just sits there. Why? Because he knows where this story's going. And Pilate doesn't. Caiaphas doesn't. Jesus does. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. It's a strange custom, but it's interesting. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He's sitting there thinking, here's the mob of people. Here's the Jewish religious leaders. I know the religious leaders are just ticked off at Jesus. So I'll go to the people and I'll say, which one do you want? Barabbas is a worthless guy. Jesus is an okay teacher. Surely they'll tell me to release Jesus. I've told you in here before that when I was growing up, we used to do a big Christmas pageant every year down at the convention center. And I remember rehearsing this scene one day, okay? This Roman soldier is bringing Barabbas in on the stage. Now, the individual we had playing Barabbas was a world-class karate expert. I mean, literally. I mean, he was in movies. He was a world-class karate expert. And this Roman soldier has this spear with a plastic tip on it. And just out of fun, I mean, this is rehearsal, he pokes him with the spear. So the individual playing Barabbas turns, and he puts his foot right here and just holds it there next to the guy's head. And he just holds it there. That's what I remember of this scene. But Barabbas is a no-good individual. Surely the people will want Jesus. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd 
to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release from you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Two observations. Number one, Pilate can wash his hands for all eternity. And he can never wash away the fact that he was responsible. We do things that we know are wrong and we think we can wash it away with water and we cannot do that. The only thing that can wipe away the guilt of our sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. Observation number one. Pilate is guilty. Observation number two. The Jewish officials say, his blood be on us and our children. That phrase has produced horrible actions on the part of Christians throughout history because people have read it to believe that the Jewish community in total is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. It is the blood libel. They are liable for the blood of Jesus, and whatever it is we do to Jews, it's okay, because they killed Jesus the Christ. You may be thinking that I'm emphasizing this too much, but I'm going to say it again. Who's in control of this situation? It isn't Pilate. It isn't Caesar sitting on the throne who's in charge of Pilate, who is in control of the known Mediterranean world at the time. It isn't these Jewish officials who think that they are protecting the goodness of their religion and their temple by killing Jesus. It isn't the Jewish crowd here saying, give us Barabbas instead of Jesus. It is God himself who is in control. And why is he doing it? To save us from our sins. Why? For God so loved the world. These Jewish officials are responsible before God for the sin that they have committed of condemning the Messiah to death. The Jewish people as a whole are only responsible for their individual responses to Jesus and the gospel. Just like every Gentile, just like every other human being that ever lived. Your Jewish friend, co-worker, is no more responsible for the blood of Jesus than you and I are. Because Jesus willingly 
gave up his life for us. Remember, 12 legions of angels, Pilate's toast, real quick. But Jesus said nothing. Why? For us. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, why did Pilate do it? Power. He didn't care about Jesus. He didn't care about him one way or the other. Now his wife had sent a message to him. Don't have anything to do with this. Gentlemen, listen to your wives. His wife said, I had this dream, and guess what? What did she see in her dream? I have no idea. We know what other people saw in dreams. Angels descending, coming up and down. Who knows what she saw? But she saw, and she told Pilate, don't have anything to do with him. But Pilate was worried. And in one of the other Gospels, one of the religious leaders said the secret word. If you let him go, you're not really a friend of Caesar's. And that's all that it took. Power. He didn't care about justice, but he cared about maintaining his position in that society at that point in time. And so he handed him over to be crucified. He didn't hand him over to the Jews because they couldn't crucify him. He handed him over to a group of Roman soldiers. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. But we'll begin next week in verse 3. And we'll back up just a little bit. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus Christ was willing to submit to the humiliation of humanity in order to purchase our salvation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.